Welcome to the regular podcast from Editorial Intelligence, the media analysis and networking business. You can see all our broadcast interviews on our EITV channel on YouTube and editorialintelligence.com. Thank you very much indeed. I've always thought the biggest difference between business and uh, uh, business people and politicians is that uh, Politicians tend to do lunch, and business people always say, let's do breakfast. <laughs> uh, you're all making the, uh, a marvellous crossover here today. They're all very well known to you, so I'll just introduce them as, as I ask them to speak. And uh, first up, uh, uh, appropriately, uh, is, is the person who is, um, in, in many ways, uh, host, uh, Lord Sainsbury, David Sainsbury. Uh, nobody knows more, really, about the uh, interface between uh, politics and government than he does, because in 1998 he leapt over the Sainsbury's counter and uh, <laughs> uh, threw on the ermine and uh, went, in, went into government. Um, he brings uh, enormous insights from all of that. I'm sure you'd rather hear from him than me. And without further ado, I'll ask him to speak to you about this extraordinary subject. How well do business and government understand each other? Are they speaking the same language? Right. Um, well, I think, I think the first thing to say is that, is that probably business understands government. Uh, ne- it doesn't necessarily like what government does, but I don't think there's a problem about uh, business understanding uh, government. The question is, to what extent does government um, understand business? And the answer is not very well. But I have to say, I think the blame for that is pretty evenly dis- uh, shared between both government and um, industry. And I'll, I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, I think the main problem is uh, that there is not a, any kind of agreement um, as to what the role of government in business is. And therefore, when it comes to communication or understanding, um, uh, there is no kind of framework within which this uh, takes place. Um, so. One of the rather extraordinary things uh, that one found in government is that um, there was a kind of political debate going on um, uh, as to what the role of of the DTI, as it then was, uh, what is the role of DTI um, in in industry. Um, And indeed, we had uh, the famously Vince Cable saying uh, he didn't see any role for, for the DTI. Um, well, that was going on, and then at the same time, uh, one was working unbelievably long hours, dealing with an endless series of problems which related to, to industry, uh, whether it's corporate law, funding of science, and so on. And uh, it seems to me that um, uh, you need, first of all, to have a very clear understanding, if we're going to improve communication, um, that... Uh, government has a uh, very significant role in two ways which are important to industry. One is, is creating the conditions in which uh, entrepreneurial activity can take place. Uh, you need to have, government needs to do a whole series of things in areas like uh, company law, employment law, the funding of science, uh, negotiations in Europe, which have a major impact uh, on industry. Um, also on areas like skills and so on, and uh, that uh, industry must, must be uh, in agreement with government that that is the role government uh, uh, plays. 
Uh, also, uh, industry always wanted uh, constantly the DTI to be the voice of industry and government so that where other government activities uh, were impinging uh, um, badly on uh, industry, the DTI would take up the cause. Now, only when you've got that clear uh, can you then start having proper communications uh, between government and industry. And what one found was, because there wasn't this clarity of, of roles, uh, there was indeed a section of the DTI which was called uh, Business uh, Relations. Uh, and they were always proudly telling you um, that they had had so many meetings with, with industry. Uh, of course, almost always they were at the wrong level, so there was, there was no point to these meetings. Um, and no one was very clear as to what they should be talking about. Um, so there really was, it was largely complete, pointless. Um, and then when you got to a major problem, uh, you found there was not really the uh, knowledge and understanding within the department um, of how to deal with it. The other side of that was that, of course, we have in the UK, um, I think, very weak trade associations. Um, they're very fragmented, which I think is a part of our industrial, long industrial history. Um, they're very underfunded, and therefore um, it's very difficult to go to them um, and get uh, good information. Now, it wasn't all bad. Um, I think uh, there were a number of occasions where I think there was enormously good uh, communication between uh, industry and government while I was there. Uh, we had a thing called innovation and growth teams, which we put together teams of the civil servants and people in industry, and they worked amazingly well. Um, I think on the whole raft of employment law, uh, very good work was done between um, governments working very closely with industry. Uh, as a whole, industry didn't like the employment uh, changes, but because there was very close working, uh, the difficulties of implementation, <coughs> the impact on business uh, was enormously ameliorated because there was good uh, communications. So um, I don't think the uh, communications uh, are good. Um, and it would be very easy to have a, a discussion this morning on the basis of, uh, you know, politicians and bureaucrats will never understand industry. Uh, you know, that, that's the trouble with bureaucrats and politicians. And on the other hand, um, industry will never understand uh, government because they're driven by short-term profit motive. Um, I think that's a pretty unproductive discussion to have. A better discussion to have is um, how do you improve them? And I think the two ways to do that, one is you've got to get a clearer consensus um, as to what the role of uh, government in industry is, and the second is um, how do we improve uh, the communication of trade associations uh, with government? Thank you very much indeed. Um, our next speaker, uh, Tony Blair, wrote in his memoirs that one of his <laughs> favourite pastimes was to try and bring Patricia Hewitt uh, into a discussion in the cabinet <laughs> and encourage her, not he suggests that you needed enough encouragement, to make feminist points and watch John Prescott's face change colour. <laughs> That's not why you're here today, of course. Thank you. Um, <laughs> you're here for your uh, enormous insights as a distinguished uh, Secretary of State and and, and you're someone who's made the crossover in, in, into business. Um, and you uh, indeed showed business-like uh, qualities uh, over the 
in uh, January 2010 when uh, Alan Sugarlike, uh, you effectively marched up to Gordon Brown and said you're fired. Uh, <laughs> on this occasion, the contestant didn't uh, leave the studio, um, but we'd love to hear what you have to say about this interface, business and politics. Gary, thank you very much indeed. Um, I agree with almost everything David says, and your experience of mine, of course, very much overlapped at uh, what was then the Department of Trade and Industry. I think I would sum up my feelings on this by saying I wish I had spent more time in business before I came into government. I did spend some little time in business in the sense that I, I worked for Accenture and before, before I came into Parliament government, which was extraordinarily interesting, because there I was in a global consultancy, which was one of the very, very early uh, commercial users of the internet in its earliest stages. I felt almost as if I was in a global university, sort of being able to see some of the leading edge changes going on in almost every sector and every country of the world, because that's the position you have if you are working in one of those international uh, business organizations. But of course, I spent most of my working life, as many of you know, in the voluntary sector, liberty, and then helping to create IPPR. But of course, coming into Parliament as a Labour member of Parliament, I was one of the very, very few Labour MPs who had any experience at all of business. And that lack of business experience, particularly on the labor benches, I think was um, a real disadvantage uh, right through our years in government. So I agree with David that there are, you know, there are very real misunderstandings and a significant degree of prejudice um, amongst politicians towards business. I'm not Really, that business has a thorough understanding of government. It's true, obviously, big companies, and particularly big companies or companies of any kind working in the regulated sector, where they, to some extent, live or die on the basis of what government does. <coughs> but I think amongst smaller businesses, um, you know, whose lives are more indirectly affected by government policy, there is often a great deal, actually, of just misunderstanding fear, um, and sometimes prejudice. And one of the things I found as a constituency member of Parliament was just, oh, I found as a constituency member of Parliament in, in Leicester that the businesses I was meeting all the time, sometimes at their request, but very often at mine, were astonished to find that they were talking to somebody who you know, wasn't biting their heads off, appeared to be reasonably normal, and was terribly interested in what they were actually doing. And it was, you know, the, the conversation generally started by them saying, oh, I've never met a politician before. I didn't really know what to expect. But clearly what they expected was not, uh, not at all good. So I think there's a big gulf, and I think it's very damaging to, to policy making. Now, there are some very odd gulfs in attitude that exacerbate the problem. Any of you who work in business know perfectly well time is money. 
And if you work as I did in the kind of business where every hour of the day is on a timesheet and is billed to somebody, my goodness me, you know that time is money. You then come into the House of Commons or into government where time has no value at all. <laughs> I can assure you, yeah. if a vote happens at 7 o'clock, at 10 o'clock, at 1 o'clock in the morning, at 4 in the morning, do the whips mind? No, of course they don't. Do they mind if a minister working all hours of the day and night is told, oh, there's definitely going to be a vote at 10 o'clock. In fact, it'll probably be 11 o'clock and you absolutely have to stay. You know, this is real knife-edge stuff. And then, of course, there is no vote at all and you then discover at half past 10 that the opposition have all gone home at 7 in the evening. Do the whips mind? Not in the slightest. And you then find in government great respect to the excellent civil servants who are here, do officials really mind if a policy is formulated or options are formulated, policy decided and legislation passed in the course of one year, that would be a miracle, one year, two years, five years, seven years? No, no, of course they don't. Because leaving aside fiscal crisis, Basically, they will still be in work. And actually, by the time you've gone through a long, drawn-out policy options exercise and a consultation process, and you've then thought about it and you're not sure you like the results of it and maybe the minister's changed and the politics are difficult, and actually the world's moved on, so you have to start all over again. Mm. Meanwhile, business is getting on with life. So that is hugely frustrating. The other thing I discovered when I came back to the Department of Trade and Industry, having been a junior minister there as Secretary of State, the new permanent secretaries, Robin Young and I, immediately embarked on a review and a transformation of the department because, for reasons David has partly touched on, it really wasn't fit for purpose. And in the course of that, I talked to the sort of consultant um, who had been working with the top team in the department and, and was working with top teams in a number of other departments. And he shared with me, obviously not by individual, but the aggregate Myers-Briggs scores for the top team in the department, which were very typical of those across the civil servant. And for those of you who know the Myers-Briggs um, system, one of the uh, spectrums, if you like, on which people are um, uh, evaluated, not evaluated, but assessed, is um, between uh, an analytical um, problem, yeah, an analytical uh, end of the spectrum and an action end of the spectrum. And surprise, surprise, the senior civil servants were almost entirely on the analytical end for obvious reasons and chosen for that skill. But the bias against action that has been built in to the selection and formation of the civil service is really quite profound. I'll make a final point, if I may. The advantages to government and to the country of bringing business and other stakeholders into the policy formulation process, I think are profound. And actually, employment law, which David mentioned, is a very interesting example. In the first few months that I was Secretary of State, 
we embarked on a reform of employment tribunals to try and get disputes and grievances resolved where they should be inside the workplace and reduce the number of cases that were actually unnecessarily coming to employment tribunals. It was a complete disaster and has recently had to be unwound. And it was a disaster because actually all the decisions ended up being made by officials and lawyers. We then subsequently did the right to request, initially for parents of young children, now actually going to be extended to all workers, and in the meantime has been extended to a lot of other groups. The way we did that was to bring together, I think, John, it was you yourself, wasn't it? It was. It was. We had the CBI, the TUC, somebody from Small Businesses, Equal Opportunities Commission, a couple of other stakeholders, and we basically, I said to them, I have to confess, not entirely truthfully, I will not be able to legislate for this unless we get agreement. We've got to be able to say the business community, the unions, the equal opportunities uh, world have to agree on this policy. And what we got was far more radical and far more effective than we'd originally envisaged as a government. Um, it went further than the CBI had originally envisaged. It was far more radical in its impact, I think, than the TUC and the Equal Opportunities Commission had expected. Hugely successful piece of policy making, but a completely different way of policy making as well. Thank you very much indeed. Um, our next speaker, uh, Simon Wolfson, uh, moved from running next very successfully uh, to come to the House of Lords. Is he going to jump over the counter fully like David Sainsbury and become a goat, we all wonder. Um, please talk to us, if you will, uh, about, uh, without repetition or deviation, um, about this subject. Do, do business and, go, and, and come and understand each other. Um, well, first of all, can I just say how very excited I am to be in a room with an overflow room. Normally when I come to these events, there's a hurried sort of stacking of chairs at the back of the room. <laughs> gets filled up. So, you know, I think today, you know, that, that is very exciting for me. Um, my worry is not whether government understands business, it's whether government really understands and whether government really wants growth. Um, and um, the conflict is not between government and business, it is between politics and growth. And in my view, growth in this country could be much stronger than it is. We could have a dramatically growing economy over the next 10 years if we really want it. Um, the problem is that whilst the idea of growth um, and you know, the GDP numbers and all the accolades that go with growth are, are very popular, the actual reality of growth, what it actually looks like, is unpopular. It's unpopular with a lot of uh, sort of very vocal pressure groups in particular. And the comparison I like to use is the, is the person who loves the idea of having babies, but really doesn't like changing nappies, and is never going to change a nappy, let alone give birth. Um, and, you know, so what government seems to be, you know, often tries to do is to sort of look for poolless babies. You know, they say, we're going to go for growth, but it's got to be green tech, high tech, uh, in this middle of centre, you know. It's, it's, it's got to be all these things that are going to be popular. Um, so basically, it's sort of the invention of the sort of poolless baby type industry. Um, and actually, what real growth looks like, um, 
I think, actually, are the things that profoundly improve quality of life, but things which aren't instantly popular. And I'm thinking about things like housing, transport, especially the improvement of roads. Um, and even, and I won't talk about this because we're on podcast and it's just too controversial, even immigration, which I'm very much in favour of the right type of immigration, um, and a growing population it, you know, goes hand in hand with a growing economy. Um, I'm just going to start by talking a little bit about housing and development. The, you know, the potential to create wealth at the stroke of a pen lies um, with our planning system and our planners. And you've only got to look at the difference between an acre of agricultural land at around £15,000 and an acre of land with open planning for development at around a million pounds to realise that the government has in its possession an enormous blank checkbook that it will not use. And not only will it not use it, actually... More often than not, it, it is in the process of locking up the checkbook in ever deeper drawers um, and ever stronger safes. And um, nowhere is this more apparent than in the listing, um, the listing uh, groups, um, English Heritage in, in particular. I, I you know, work in retail, and the you know, nice thing about retail is that growth comes to building new shops, and people like new shops, that's why they, they shop there. Um, Milton Keynes Shopping Centre, not the most, you know, sort of 1960s monstrosity, really, maybe 50s even, um, has just been listed. It, it is the most extraordinary sort of attitude that we have towards, um, towards growth that actually we have become, as a nation, more fond of preserving the past than we have of really accelerating growth and working for the future. And the problem, I think comes down to incumbency. And incumbency has a vote. The future and future businesses and future homes and the people who live in those future homes do not have a vote. And that is the fundamental problem with um, the political pressures uh, and the drive for growth. Uh, that if in any local, organ local community the prospect of building new homes new offices, um, new roads. All those things are going to be deeply opposed by the people who have votes and vote for the local council. The future businesses, the future homes, they don't have a vote. And until such time as we're able to break the deadlock and to change our attitude towards growth and to love the future a little bit more than we love the past, then we're going to be in a situation where we have extremely slow growth in this country. Um, you can't sort of make an economic omelette without breaking some industrial eggs. Um, the industrial eggs I'd like to see broken are Greenbelt. You want more housing? You want more growth? It can happen. Just turn a bit of Greenbelt, southeast of England, into new housing. Nice housing where people want to live. You know, not the sort of flats that government have forced industry, the housing industry, to build over the last. 10 years, but actually just let the developers build houses they think people want to live in, which tend to be two, three bedrooms, off-street parking, little garden. Why not? Let the wealth creators do their job and take the brakes off. And that's all government really have to do to unlock the potential of our economy. On top of that, they, they, there are some things that only government can do, and this really comes down to infrastructure. Um, private enterprise cannot build a road. Government can. But... The immensely sensible idea that was floated a while back by, um, by myself, actually, of building... 
um, of building a, a motorway between Oxford and Cambridge and joining the two great um, academic centres of this country, which are only 81 miles apart. They only need to be an hour and a bit apart, um, not three hours apart, and creating a cluster along that route of new businesses, of land for new businesses, new homes. That idea, as well as taking a huge amount of pressure off the M25 and off the transport system of, of central London, seems to me immensely sensible. But I, I'm afraid anyone I've suggested this to in government reacts to the, like, you know, the builder who comes around and you say, I just want this very simple thing doing, and the much sucking of teeth, and oh, it'll be expensive, and I can't really do that, and it's going to cost you, and it'll take 200 years. Um, and, and there's no real sense of, actually, we, you know, we have got an economic water fight. We've got, and if we want growth over the next few years, if we really want it, then we've got to do some things that are going to be controversial, unpopular, but actually in the long run will be popular. And the, the best example I can give you of this is, is, again, on roads. No one in their right mind would suggest that shutting the M1 would be anything other than catastrophic for our economy. If you said to them, sorry, I think the M1's a bit dirty and noisy. Shall we actually shut it? Because, it, you know, it's good for the environment to shut it. And um, so they'd go, you're mad. You actually would, you know, it would have a dramatic effect on the economy of this country. Well, if you can understand why the closing of a motorway will destroy wealth. Why can't we understand that the creation of new motorways, of new transport routes, will actually create economic growth? Because if one is true, the other must be true. Um, and it is that spirit that I would like to imbue in government, the spirit of courage and adventure and love of the future, rather than fear of short-term political losses. Thank you very much. Feisty stuff. And for those of you who enjoyed that speech, there will be a commemorative plate uh, made to... Uh, a heritage plate to uh, mint it, but <laughs> uh, uh, put, put on your mantelpiece. Um, thank you very much indeed. Our, our, our next speaker is, is, is known to all of you. If there is a, a, an interface between government and business, uh, a sort of no man's land, razor wire, checkpoint Charlie, then John Cridland probably literally walked across it more often than any other human being. Um, and he's now uh, Director General, as you all know, of the CBI, and I invite him to talk to you about our topic. Thank you very much. Um, my job is to be the voice of business, and I'm feeling this morning a bit like Colin Firth. I'm in search of a voice, <laughs> as in the King's speech, because I've been doing too many speeches this week and I've worn it out, so bear with me. Um, my job is clearly to be that interlocutor, or at least from one side of the table to the other, increasingly in partnership. And the fact that I'm very busy and that the CBI is very busy and that government spends a lot of time talking to the CBI and equivalent bodies is a clear indication that there are systemic reasons, and I think we've already heard some of them from the three spe previous speakers, why naturally business and government are in different camps. And I think it derives from culture. I think some of the points made about the underpinning and underlying reasons, value systems, behaviours, the things that come out of Myers-Briggs, do illustrate why we need to spend a lot of time compensating for something which is very natural. We should not beat ourselves up. We should not mark people down for the fact that we need to spend a lot of time on task forces getting public policy right for business. It is a natural and understandable part of the body politic. And this really came home to me, to use a slightly flippant example, gosh, maybe 20 years ago now, when I was first made a director. And I was sent away, as people often are when they reach the giddy heights of being a director, 
for a several week long, very expensive residential senior leadership course, which was designed for my needs. And 50% of the people on it were in the public sector, and 50% of the people in it were in the private sector, and they didn't understand each other at all. And at the end of four weeks, I'd got my own view as to why that was. And it comes back, Patricia, to something you said. Because to use a footballing analogy, the guys and girls from the private sector, their job was to put the ball in the net. They were task and finishers. They wanted to run projects, and we did lots of projects all over the country in a four-week period. They wanted to run projects, and they wanted to complete them, because they wanted to create value for the shareholder and move on to something else. And we had some incredibly talented rising stars of the senior leadership team of the public service and of local government, and I learned an incredible lot from these guys and girls. But their value system was the exact opposite. There would always be another minister. There would always be another general election. There would always be another local government administration. You didn't put the ball in the net. In fact, it was a career-limiting move to put the ball in the net. Your job was to keep the ball in play. <laughs> and that taught me a lot about the difference in culture. I also think the challenges that face the relationship between business and government have got far more acute and I think there are some trends in the world which are making that relationship more starkly differentiated. And I think the most important one is globalization. Most governments, and this is not a criticism of government, it is a reality of government, and it's not peculiarly British, it's true around the world, still believe fundamentally in their DNA in territoriality. They believe they can take actions which are within a sovereign space. That is increasingly completely irrelevant to the business community, not just to the very largest multinationals, to most businesses. And in the time I've been at the CBI, which is rather a long time, I have seen the very mission that we are here to achieve mutate. Are we here to promote the competitiveness of British business? Well, not really, because I don't know what British business is anymore. What I know is how to add value to businesses that are doing business in Britain and out of Britain. Companies are no longer distinctively national. They're not distinctively American. I don't think, frankly, any longer, but there are degrees to this, rather more controversial comment, I don't think they're even distinctively French. Over time, globalization is removing the territorial roots the territorial purpose of business. doesn't mean that business isn't acutely interested in the administration of the jurisdiction in which it's based, but it changes its frame of reference. And I think one of the biggest public policy issues, not one that resonates with the guy or girl on the Clapham omnibus, but one of the biggest public policy issues of the last five years, and one of the areas, without making a party political comment, where the previous administration found its way getting into a minefield of difficulty, was the Treasury's approach to taxation. The Treasury's approach to taxation remains territorial. It believes it can take actions that business will live with or not live with, but put up with and basically be mugged over. And frankly now, business has tremendous choices. And you all know there is hardly a boardroom of a listed company which during the last government was not taking professional advice in its shareholders' interests as to whether it should move its tax domicile out of the United Kingdom. 
Some did, not that many, but virtually all spent serious money discussing that. And it took a tremendous long time for government and the Treasury to realise it was sleepwalking into a disaster. And it's been a very high priority of the last year to begin to turn that corner. But in case there is any risk that people feel I'm making a party political comment, I don't think this is a party political issue. I think we've seen even within the last year that this trend continues. The likelihood of government with its different culture, its different purpose, its different value set to misunderstand the impact of things it plans to do is legion. We probably, because of the uh, esteemed panel that you have this morning, we've concentrated on the Department for Business. My job is really difficult outside of the Department for Business, never mind within it. Because the further you get away from government departments whose primary economic rationale is economic, you have to beg for a meeting. Mm. <laughs> I saw a Secretary of State this week who hadn't met the CBI in 13 months because he'd been very busy. Mm. Now, we had an incredibly successful meeting. But the point is, the further you get away from the essential economic bloodstream of the country, the more you face the problems that Simon was describing. And actually, business is much, much, much more affected by government that is not economically facing. We have many more challenges with departments of state that do not have business or treasury or economy in the title. Yeah. And surprises, it surprises me that cabinet ministers are surprised by this. <laughs> not as big an issue as the tax point I've already made, but a very, very serious issue, and I touch this with care, because it's a slightly controversial issue on which my views can be misinterpreted. But one of the biggest surprises for this government in the last year in its relations with business was how disastrous the Bribery Act, which it inherited from the previous administration, almost became for corporate Britain. I've had multinational chief executives in my office who have pulled out, not thinking of doing it, they have pulled out of some of the very biggest emerging markets in the world within the last six months because of the Bribery Act. Yet when I go on national media and say the Bribery Act was not fit for purpose, all hell comes down on top of me because I am making a politically incorrect comment. I have no problem with the intent or the principles of the Bribery Act. They are admirable and necessary. And a Bribery Act was needed but not this one. It is an appalling and disastrous piece of legislation because it was written by a department that has virtually no conversation with business and no understanding of the real world of the economy. And some of the last minute cliff edge improvements that were made to the Bribery Act in the spring of this year against all the wishes of the Ministry of Justice because the CBI and multinational companies lent with great weight on the Prime Minister, who eventually lent with great weight on the Lord Chancellor, could have been made at any point in the last two years, but were not, because the lawyers involved had no understanding and no incentive to relate to the needs of the real economy. The seriousness of that issue 
at a time when we're seeking to rebalance the economy, and an important part of the rebalancing of that economy to achieve the economic growth that Simon was talking about comes from rebooting our export performance, it's not the only factor, but it's one, to hobble the ability of small, medium and large companies by a piece of legislation whose intentions were admirable but whose actual legislative impact was appalling just shows how important this morning's panel debate is and how much there will always be to do to bring the relationship between business and government together. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed for that. Um, uh, our final contributor, last but not least, is John Walters, known to uh, all of you, I'm sure, enormously uh, distinguished uh, uh, member of the FT uh, staff for many years, now global editor of Lex. John was telling me just before we started that he um, spent the Blair, Blair years uh, look, looking in from outside and, uh, and kind of missed them. So I'll introduce him to Patricia and Dave. He's probably <laughs> wondering who's down here um, afterwards. Uh, and and we'd, we'd love to hear um, your thoughts, mm. uh, global thoughts, uh, if, if you will, on um, business and government. Do they understand each other? Great. Thank you very much. Well, I, I'm very flattered to be in this, in this company. Uh, and I do indeed have to make the big disclaimer. I didn't just... I didn't just miss the Blair years, I missed the Brown years as well. I've not, not deliberately, not through any particular party political point, I managed to be out of the country for the entire Labour government. <laughs> got back last, uh, got back, uh, last summer, did, did manage to be in the, in, in the States for quite a lot of very interesting, uh, very interesting events, but uh, I absolutely do not have the privileged view yet uh, that the other panellists have of that critical interface in this country between, uh, between Whitehall and business. Uh, what I did have, uh, and what uh, colours my perceptions of most things for the time being, is, is uh, an extremely privileged vantage point of the global financial crisis, because I was based primarily in New York, two blocks away from Lehman Brothers' headquarters, these days Barclays Capital's headquarters, uh, building changed colour a few years ago, once that, once that happened. Uh, and it was part of my remit to make very frequent trips from New York back to the city. Uh, and that gave me a very uh, clear understanding of um, how uh, the business and government communities in both countries saw the gathering storms uh, <coughs> of the financial crisis, or particularly in the case uh, of Britain, failed to see the gathering storms of the financial crisis. Now, my general perception, um, obviously still, even though I've now been back in the country about a year, still formed primarily from, uh, from life in the States, is that uh, in general, as a fair generalization, business understands government, per se, only too well. Perhaps, indeed, too well for its own good. Uh, if you look at the, uh, the uh, mistakes that were made in Regulation. If you look at the brilliance with which the financial industry uh, lobbied government in the years up to the implosions of 2007 and 2008, uh, I think that was an example of, uh, of lobbyists of, of, of business uh, knowing only too well what it needed, what they needed to do. Uh, and when it came to the, uh, I, I think I'm agreeing with more or less everybody who has spoken on this point. If there is a serious problem. It is the other way around. I'm not sure, uh, again speaking uh, in broad brushes, that, uh, that government does understand business, and that's both at the technical level, that often uh, 
the uh, people who are involved in the civil service in the regulatory bodies simply don't know enough, don't understand enough, aren't paid well enough to really get what is being asked of them, to see what uh, is being negotiated away from them. Uh, and there's also a cultural level to this, that the, uh, that, um, the people who have their careers in, in government, it's very interesting to hear Patricia's comment about wishing she had spent longer in business before entering government. That's the way that, uh, the way that uh, a governmental career is, is structured in most countries makes it very difficult indeed to have had a particularly substantial career in business to have really learnt the kind of lessons you have through uh, building a career, doing various jobs, making various mistakes. The sad thing, which I think is universal, that the way you really learn things in life is to get things wrong. Um, it's very hard indeed to build, a, build a, much of a political career and also have truly learned what it's like to be in business. So there's a cultural issue that it seems to me is universal. Uh, another point that I think um, is is critical is that when we talk about the word governments, I think implicitly um, we're talking in the British context about uh, Whitehall, um, about dealing with, uh, dealing with Sir Humphrey. Um, and uh, when it comes to the level of dealing with elected politicians, when, of dealing with Jim Hacker, then there's a much greater problem, uh, and that's universal, and it seems to me that as the economy has, well, as we first of all had the financial implosion followed by the very serious economic difficulties of the last few years, that problem has become ever greater. There is a particularly serious disconnect between the wishes uh, and understandings, the framework, the, the lens through which the world is viewed by elected politicians uh, and by business. You could say, I mean, some of the points is, you were making is you could almost say this is a flaw in, in democracy. Uh, uh, vote, a democratic politician has to do what his voters uh, want him to do. That's the whole idea of, uh, it's a very fundamental concept. Uh, when people are very angry with business uh, and with fairly good reason for the last few years, that will tend to translate into some rather foolish, short-sighted policies. But if in a democracy, what are you supposed to do if that is what your electorate wants you to do? If you want, uh, for me, um, uh, the two classic examples of where you saw this, uh, these disconnects, these, uh, uh, these problems come to, come to a fore, uh, were in the critical months at the end of uh, 2008. Um, if ever there was a moment when you suddenly realized that uh, the emperor had no clothes, that, that the political class simply didn't get it, it was uh, the day that uh, the TARP, the Troubled Assets Relief Program, was voted down by Congress. Um, um, the great irony, the very great irony, um, is that TARP did actually turn out to be the single best, most successful program in, of all the various programs that were launched to try to, uh, to stanch the bleeding, particularly after Gordon Brown's you know, now, uh, now uh, notorious um, misspeech, uh, mis but to a, to a large extent the idea of using that money to, uh, to uh, recapitalize banks did indeed save the world. Hmm. Um, it's very fascinating that the, the one piece of legislation, the, the one act of government that really did more than anything else to stop us tipping over into complete disaster 
um, was the one that got voted down first and was most contentious. Um, and what was critical was the moment of revealing. Um, it became obvious, obviously many people in the States were very angry, and we also saw the anger and the you know, disgusting things that were done to, to bankers, you know, graffiti on the home of Fred Goodwin or whatever in this country. There was obvious, very real and very understandable anger. Um, but it was obvious that business, uh, business lobbies had failed to get across uh, and politicians didn't understand that we were in a day or two of ATMs ceasing to function, of paychecks not going out, of uh, an economic crisis of a scale that nobody had ever experienced, ever conceived of, um, which any number of people could tell them. It wasn't scaremongering, it was true. Uh, the fact of understanding the people who are running this country absolutely have no clue how bad this is um, was, for me, what finally tipped us over into a you know, quite, extraordinary, uh, quite extraordinary market crash that followed. It didn't actually follow the Lehman collapse. It followed the moment of realizing, actually, there is no captain here or no captain that we can trust, no captain that has a map, no captain that knows where we're going or whether there is an iceberg, whether, is, whether there is such a thing as an iceberg. Um, now, in terms of where, um, where we are now in the UK, just it's very interesting hearing some of the, uh, some of the, the comments. It's obvious that the, uh, the wheels are spinning, that there is an inability to, um, to make the trade-offs that are necessary actually to grow. Um, you know, we're in, you, know, you can call it a liquidity trap or whatever. The, the, we're in a very difficult situation to start to get the wheels doing anything other than spin. Um, and there is, uh, I think, quite serious misunderstanding on both sides of the political divide of, of, of um, what can happen. And I'm not, I'm not sure I'm making any party political points here because uh, two of the, there are two parties in power at the moment and in many critical respects their policies are similar to those of the, uh, uh, of the, party, that, uh, the party that came before, uh, particularly in the level of, at the level of the, the banking so I think there is a misunderstanding. I don't think government understands the trade-offs that are necessary. That um, I certainly think that tougher, nastier regulation is necessary, and I also understand that there is a trade-off for that in growth. We have to put up with uh, we have to put up with a less dynamic, less profitable financial system if we don't want the uh, the uh, a, a repeat of the disasters that we saw a few years ago. Banks plainly don't understand the realities that are facing. Politicians, politicians don't understand, and, and as far as I can see, the uh, the, the regulators, the the, uh, the government itself, doesn't really seem to understand the realities of uh, facing facing banks who are being more tightly regulated and have very strong incentives not not to be lending. Um, the f there are very many reasons why the economy's wheels are spinning at the moment, but certainly that the, this this central misunderstanding of the two cultures is a is a big part of it. Uh, just a few other points just to, uh, just to, just to conclude following on from uh, points that have been made elsewhere on uh, discussing, discussing planning and the, you know, this bounty that's, that's, uh, that's out there to be made. Um, uh, it does appear to me that that is a problem that is almost eternal. Um, Not uh, in China. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I've been out of the... I have been out of the country an awful long time, but I do remember back when I was uh, 
back when I was, I was working for the, this other Financial Times journalist called uh, just Andrew Adonis then rather than Lord Adonis. Mm. I, I remember being briefed by John Gummer, who was then Environment Secretary, about the, all the, the things they were going to do to loosen, loosen planning at that stage to, uh, to uh, unleash growth. I'm thinking off the top of my head that was about 16 years ago. Um, so th this is a problem that, uh, that doesn't, uh, doesn't ever go away. Uh, and the other thing that was very interesting to hear, uh, Mr. Cridlin raises the whole issue of, of nationalism, um, particularly British business. If you look at the companies in the FTSE 100, um, they're not very British. Uh, I mean, the FTSE 100 is, it, it, not only is it not very British, it's, it's extremely un-British. I mean, just the, the, the re most recent example of a couple of very, very distinguished British businessmen being ousted from the board of a company that is essentially Kazakh, but that is listed in, uh, listed in, uh, listed in, in London. I think, I think nationalism uh, is a very serious uh, problem at this point because business is so global and because London in particular has profited so much by putting itself in the middle of the... Of, of, the, uh, of the global business world. Um, I do, however, think that nationalism is a problem that often can be egged on by business as well as government. When you have cross-border merger bids, the nationalistic response that you get can come as much from the business community as from government. Uh, the fact that the London Stock Exchange itself is controlled by Britain, I, I I cannot see that it makes any difference at all who, what, what the nationality of the owner of the London Stock Exchange. Uh, and there are very, very many instinctively nationalistic people in the London business community as well as, in, as well as politicians who do not seem to understand that to the detriment of Britain. So uh, I have learned a lot so far. I hope I have had something to contribute. Thank you very much indeed. You've definitely uh, added, and thank you all very much indeed for those uh, contributions. I'm sure they've stimulated um, some thoughts out there. just want to say, um, you, a lot of your faces are extremely familiar, and uh, you're at least as distinguished as the panel. But if you just want to say who you are as you uh, ask your um, question, and we'll, uh, we'll try and uh, squeeze in as many as we can. And at the end, I might just ask the uh, panellists to uh, have, have a few um, final, final thoughts if there's time. Yes, please. Thank you very much. Uh, totally different from the Institute of Ideas. Simon, uh, Simon, when I read your article in the Times for making the proposal about the motorway between Cambridge and Oxford, it cheered me up that someone was going to make a sort of sensible, bold proposal, and I thought, that's great, wow. Uh, on reflection, I think, how sad that I was cheered up by a relatively trivial <laughs> proposal. And I think it speaks to the culture that you're talking about, that something relatively straightforward and trivial um, uh, should appear so bold in the current climate. So I think, uh, uh, having been out of the country for so long, uh, uh, John Authors, uh, you, you perhaps do need to re reacquaint yourself with quite what's happened over the last couple of decades. So I would be very, very interested, seriously, to know from the other panel members what you think about the problem uh, uh, that Simon Wilson has raised about our attitudes to growth and that being a bigger issue than uh, the conversation between business and government. And I would like to ask Simon, uh, you can't really lay this all at the door of government. Does business really have uh, uh, the, the, the right attitude towards growth? Has business not become risk-averse as well and worried about the future? Uh, is it fair to lay all the blame uh, on politicians? I'll not get on a soapbox because I could bore for Britain on the need for growth. Clearly, it's the issue of the moment. You know, If I'm in my local pub, people say, we know you do something in this sort of area. 
you know, I'm beginning to wonder what sort of jobs my kids are going to get. Who are they going to be working for? Will they ever buy a house? Will they have a pension? To which my response, over a pint, at least over the first pint, tries to be <laughs> coherent, and says, really good questions. You're right to be asking these. Perhaps we've had a period where our generation did particularly well. And looking forward, the prospects for the economy, I'm not suggesting there isn't a route forward, but it's less obvious. And it needs some of the bold choices that Simon was talking about. So I think we almost need a national debate about the need for growth. You know, we know where we stand on the National Health Service. We know where the British public stand on the Green Belt. But do we know where the British public stand on the need for growth? We didn't probably need that debate a decade ago because some of the supply-side reforms we'd had in the 80s were still delivering a framework, even, frankly, on a cross-party political position. There was a consensus about some of the things you needed to do to make your living in a globalised economy. But, as John was saying, 2008 was a game-changer. The world is now completely different. I think the public are very bright. They're asking the right questions. But I think the answers are less obvious. Um, well, I, I think I'd slightly change after this, uh, hearing this discussion what I said about um, uh, business understanding government. But I'd phrase it slightly differently. It's saying, if, from what people have been saying, it's business doesn't understand the society or the economy, both of these, that they're actually working in. I mean, the, the idea, and I think this was one of the problems in a sense. Um, I spent a lot of time dealing with something called the REACH Directive, which was about chemical control in Europe, and trying to sort that out. Um, as a whole, the business attitude was, uh, we don't want any of this. We, we, this is difficult, it's awful, we should have nothing to do with it. That was simply um, a, ho a hopeless position to take. Uh, the, the public and everyone else had a very strong view that they did not want uh, the whole of um, our society to be polluted with, with uncontrolled chemicals. And the, you had to start with that, and then you had to try and find out a work way to make this thing work, which, which was incredibly difficult, but that's what you had to do. Um, as I say, industry took the view, we don't want to have anything to do with this, you should just oppose the whole thing. Now, you have to, with, uh, with all this, you have to start with the reality of what is the problem you're dealing with, and people are not prepared to do certain things. And that's why in the case of bribery, you have to modify the Bribery Act and make it workable. You can't just take a view, we don't want it. And that, that, that is a real starting point, which is a problem. Moving from there to the economy, um, of course, the whole point of this is that we are living in this global society. But, but you equally have to understand that this is not simply a low-cost game. It is simply not a game simply of low-cost, low taxes. It is how do you compete against countries like China who are always going to beat you on low cost. They're always going to beat you on low cost uh, because their wages are 10% of ours. And secondly, of course, they are absolutely committed to moving up the value chain and doing more sophisticated things. The only way we can meet that is not by cutting a, a bit off tax here, 
uh, trying to lower labor costs there, it is by having a major program of innovation. And some of that has got to come by industry and government working together. So, you know, you've got to put this in a framework and actually very short-term kind of, we've got to have a bit of tax here, we've got to lower labor costs there, um, we've got to um, change the planning laws. I, I'm, I'm absolutely solid with, with Simon on the question of, you know, actually uh, um, uh, preserving Milton Keynes shopping center is absolutely pathetic. Uh, but, but um, you know, there, there are actually bigger issues, and the bigger issues is how do you increase the rate of innovation in British industry? Absolutely. Mm. Um, globally speaking, this is not a race to the bottom, as the anti-globalizers like to say, this is a race to the top. And all the conversation around growth has to start from that. The truth is we are profoundly ambivalent about growth in Britain. And when Simon was making his extremely interesting proposal for the Oxford-Cambridge motorway, I remembered the battle David and I got involved in when years ago there was an attempt by a major organization in this country to make a huge investment near Cambridge that would have helped to grow a really significant, world-class, large Cambridge cluster on a much, much, much bigger scale than anything we have at the moment. And it died because the local district councils or whatever the planning, you know, the other bits of the planning authorities, they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it. Now, I think the conversation now might be different if Simon's proposal for the motorway was up in the northeast, uh, the northeast or the northwest. I think in the parts of the country which are really hurting in the current economic crisis, we may see different attitudes towards major, major changes to planning and to infrastructure investment. Although even there, even there, there will be opposition. I think, you know, further south where, yes, there's pain, but it is less sharp, there's less of a burning platform, if you like, chances of getting the kind of growth we ought to be generating around our major universities, we're just not there at the moment. And since uh, Simon was talking earlier, being a bit rude about the notion of green growth, which is something I have rather more sympathy for, you know, we also have to recognize that the last government put enormous amounts of the public's money behind renewable energy with some support from at least parts of the environmental movement. But every time it comes to an application for a new wind farm, offshore or onshore, you can bet your life half of the local environmental movement will be right out there with the placard saying no to the wind farms, no to whatever it is. So you've got a real problem here, and that requires some very courageous political leadership and a very compelling story about why these things need to change. Thank you very much. Simon, did you want to Come back on the points I've made to you there. Um, yeah, I mean, the question was, um, is business at any way at fault? And I think the answer is, is probably yes, in, in two senses. I think, first of all, um, we, uh, we allowed some terrible developments to take place. We, you know, the private sector built some terrible developments, um, which have turned people into believing that all development that in this country, that will happen in this country, will be, you know, 
box-like and, uh, and, and hideous. And actually, when you look at the housing that's being built at the moment, it isn't like that. So I think that's the, the, the first one. I think the second issue, um, and, and to be fair, you know, we, we put all the emphasis on, on John, who does a, a brilliant job of representing the views of business. I don't think business is brave enough about ex explaining um, its views and about pointing out the contradictions in some <coughs> of the things because we're scared of criticism, not, not unsurprisingly. And, you know, it, it, absolutely right that, you know, the banks haven't said, look, there is an enormous contradiction between, um, on the one hand, saying you want increased capital requirements and tighter regulation, and on the other hand, you want us to lend more to small businesses. You know, you can have one or the other, but you can't have both because they're in contradiction with each other. And I think the same is true um, of house builders um, when it comes to planning. You know, if you want cheaper houses, you have to increase supply, and you have to increase supply at the point where that supply is needed, not where the government thinks it's needed. Um, and so I think there is a, a need for government, uh, for business to be braver about explaining itself. Did you want to come back again? Or you... Yes, I, um, I, I, yes I was, it's quite interesting uh, thinking through those uh, thinking through those issues and just, just the, the, the idea of the halo effect around universities, um, where if you go to the, the US, there are a number of uh, quite remarkable examples where, where universities have, have fertilized have fertilized growth. You know, the research triangle in North Carolina being perhaps the most interesting one as it's not even as though those universities are that internationally famous and they've created a quite remarkable dynamic region around them. However, it, it does interest me where exactly the, the balance of blame belongs because there are such things in this country that, as entrepreneurial universities that can get things done, um, specifically thinking of the University of Warwick, which has a, has a halo around it, has you know, sparked growth around it, has, has, a, has, a, has an attitude towards its own existence, its own, its own role, which is very entrepreneurial and basically has created a, a, a university that despite very big differences in the way that it's ultimately funded is, um, you know, behaves and thinks and acts like, a, like an American university. Um, and you wonder whether you might not get more of that if there was a, if there was a similar, whether there's a lack of entrepreneurial zeal in universities and also whether there's a lack of entrepreneurial zeal among entrepreneurs, whether, whether you would be, get some degree of, uh, of, uh, of uh, thousand flowers Blooming, if there if uh, if there was if there was more of a, a coherent imagination uh, on the part of of uh, universities. What one final uh, of, sorry of, of business. One final idea which just just occurs to me is that I think I'm right in saying the four people who have colleges named after them in both Oxford mm -hmm. and Cambridge are Jesus, St John, Mary Magdalene, and Lord Wolfson. And you're supposed <laughs> to be able to go. From between the two countries without leaving St. John's not, not College lands. My great uncle, I'm sure. <laughs> my great uncle. Wolfson land doesn't last. There's no ability to, there's no sort of ability to. No, no, no. We're, Never mind. Jewish shopkeepers, we're not big landowners. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, well, can I come just back on that, those last comments? Mm -hmm. Because um, it's, it's not wholly relevant to the debate, but yeah. I cannot let it be said mm. that this is, continues to be a situation in this country where universities are not entrepreneurial and do not have halo effects. I mean, it isn't ca only Cambridge, it isn't only Warwick, it's, it's Oxford, it's uh, uh, Southampton, it's Surrey, in the north it's um, Manchester, it's York, 
Uh, it's exactly. beginning to be in Newcastle, it, it's beginning to Edinburgh. And it's an amazing transformation, and we should, we should stop saying you have to go to America to see this. Mm. Now, uh, there will be someone who will say, oh, but it's, it's not like it is in America. Uh, I can actually show you figures, which, which I had produced, which shows that if you take British universities and you compare them uh, with American universities, in terms of what I think is the toughest and most uh, entrepreneurial criteria, which is how much venture capital goes into businesses around universities, you will find the British universities, Stanford, of course, is still at the top, but British universities are now producing the same level of venture capital going around them as top American universities. And we should stop this thing of uh, nothing's happening good in this country. Actually, universities have transformed themselves and what we now need to do is to give as much help as we can to really build those high-tech clusters up. Thank you very much. Let's take a few more questions, yes. Thanks. Um, I'm Dermot Finch. I head up public affairs at um, Fishburne Hedges, but for 10 years I was a Treasury official. Um, so I'm sort of making an observation from sort of both sides um, of, of the fence, a slightly junior rank to you, uh, Patricia. But... Um, I think at one level, CEOs and ministers um, focus a lot of effort on building their relationships, um, and building relationships is key to business and government understanding each other, but often ministers and CEOs don't have time to develop the sort of relationship that they need um, for their respective department and business to understand each other. So what's needed is a more mid-ranking, junior-ranking set of relationships to underpin that. And one of the problems I observed in government, and it's not as <coughs> I don't think, but one problem definitely about 10, 15 years ago was that civil servants' career was actually limited by staying in the same job for too long. Civil servants actually, it was like supermarket sweep when you were in the Treasury. Actually, the more jobs you did, uh, the better chance you had of being promoted. And that was actually very difficult for business then to have a sort of deep and lasting relationship with that civil servant because they moved every sort of 15 months or so. Um, so it's just that observation um, maybe views from the panel on, you know, is that better now? Has that improved now? You know, John, on your side, do you find that your staff at the CBI are able to build relationships at a working level uh, with departments, or is it still a problem that civil servants are moving around too much? Glenn Travers, I'm in the biotechnology industry and have been involved in these uh, trade association meetings with um, parliamentarians. And just a couple of um, observations. I think Patricia Hewitt um, nailed it for me. Um, the points that we found were that the, uh, there were too few businessmen who were MPs. Um, in the House of Lords there were businessmen, but actually MPs. And I remember having a meeting with a Conservative MP who, was, who had run a business, and he said, you don't know how lonely it is here. And it was quite telling, and I think we've found that when we're trying to talk to other people in Parliament, it's very difficult because they don't understand. The second is time to action. I mean, we've been talking to the parliamentarians for many years now about some big issues. They do understand. It's just getting action on it. I mean, there was a great example. We had terrible problems with animal liberation groups, uh, you may recall, where they virtually stopped. Uh, and I think uh, two of our panel members have been instrumental in solving that, which was fantastic. But the time it took was terribly damaging to this country and its reputation globally. The third thing to say is that um, 
I think in terms of these events, there are too, too few Secretary of State sitting here listening to this. And one of the things we found when we were lobbying uh, through the Biotech Industry Association, we were getting um, some very good people like, like you, David, and others, that they, they were there, but the majority of people listening to us were secondary-level uh, politicians, and they didn't seem to be able to have any impact. So as CEOs, we felt like we were talking not to the right people and therefore not getting the message through. And the last thing I'd say, as someone involved in technology looking to the future of this country, is that unfortunately we don't like the investment in dead assets. And one of the dead assets we see is property. And you see how the banks are so exposed to property, they're crowding out our industry because there's not enough risk capital coming into our industry because so much capital has been wasted in investing in the wrong area of industry. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'll take one more question from Julia and then ask people to pick out the points they want. Yes, just a view from the ground, from a, a, a reasonably typical, if slightly high-profile SME, which is I don't really understand what the expectations government has of the relationship it should be having with my company. So it collects corporation tax, it collects PAYE, it collects um, VAT. The only communication directly I've ever had from government in over 15 years in business is an invitation to a VAT open day, which I declined <laughs> on the grounds that I think I was well-versed VAT. My children are educated at state schools where there are parents' evenings where I'm always reduced to tears by the level of knowledge and personalization driven by the last government that they have. Now, there must be some meeting in the middle here. We're about to extend in a rather pop-up way into America next week, into India at the end of the year. I have literally no idea who to communicate with, whether government should be aware of this, whether they should help. And so the question is vis-a-vis -vis growth. How do you get a meaningful relationship that isn't effectively transactional, which is they would like small businesses to, to grow all by themselves, thank you very much, and, and give more receipts to government? Great question. Let's um, go the other way this time. Maybe just pick out the bits you want to respond to <coughs> with long and get some more questions. Um, right, there was such a, such a long list. Mm. Um, on Julia's point, uh, yes, I, I find it hard to imagine that many people in government could answer the question of what they want of SMEs beyond you know, please grow. In a very, it's, it's quite a revealing question in some ways in the... In the beyond some inchoate desire that SMEs are a good thing in 1066 and all that terms. I'm not sure, I'm not sure the, uh, the average person in, in government would, uh, uh, would have, much, uh, have much idea beyond that. Remind me what the... Um, we'll, 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 we'll move along. Yes. You can come back in if you want. Yeah. Um, I think a very interesting... Uh, one of the points that came up that Patricia made very well at the beginning was this whole thing about the time value of money. And... <laughs> Um, that is a big problem for industry, and you know I don't, I don't want to bang on about planning. Obviously, it's not my nature. But um, <laughs> I, you know, I had a very interesting conversation with a, you know a, a, an important council where we wanted to build. A, there's a derelict site next to a big retail park. We wanted to put up a brand new shop there, create about 400 jobs, um, be, you know invest four million pounds, and. and uh, we were told, no, actually, we, we don't want you to do that because we're going to f uh, the local plan, which is set in stone and can't be moved, is um, going to develop the city centre, the town centre. Fair enough. Um, when is that going to happen? Eight years' time. <laughs> Eight years' time. And... The, the, unfortunately, they just don't understand that, that eight years of lost profit, eight years of lost wealth, 
is a drain on our economy. They don't see that. And I, I don't know how to get that message across other than coming to events like this and, and banging on about it, which I've done enough now. And you're here. Mm? <laughs> <laughs> I'm banging on about it there as well, but, you know. Heart attacks. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you very much. I mean, let me just say I have deep sympathy with the gentleman who was commenting from the biotech industry, and it was shocking, I think, to David and myself, how long it took to get an understanding at the top of government of what the animal rights terrorists were doing, I mean, to individuals, but doing to one of our most important growth sectors. And, you know, because we had to get the Home Office, the police, the Ministry of Justice, and all the rest of it, eventually. And we did do it. But only, I think, because there were ministers who actually loved your industry, were really interested in it, and took the trouble to understand, and then just went on battering away at colleagues until the scale of the problem became clear. But I, I wanted to come back to Julia's very interesting question. Certainly in my experience, there, there was absolutely not a single view of within government as to what the relationship with business and particularly smaller businesses should be. So you had a prime minister, certainly Tony Blair, who was genuinely very interested in business, committed to its success. It was a central part of the whole creation of new labor and so on. But that didn't necessarily permeate every minister and every department. In some cases you had, I mean, for instance, Charles Clark when he was at the Department for Education, wanting to talk to business, both about education policy, but also because there are all kinds of businesses that are an absolutely direct part of the education value chain, if you like. Massive official resistance to letting him do that because it was seen somehow as compromising or dangerous or there might somewhere in the woodwork be a tender process that would be compromised if the minister talked to a profit-making institution, a profit-making company. So, you know, some of those cultural barriers can be quite deep. On the other hand, you look at my old department, now Biz, and you look at UK trade and investment, which is a much, still got some way to go, but actually it's a high-performing organization. Uh, it's really doing well. Now, they have got some really interesting research about SMEs, the, the nub of which is that SMEs that export become, in the process of exporting, more innovative, faster growing, and more successful. And obviously, UKTI's main purpose is to help SMEs uh, export. But in order to get to the companies that will become successful exporters, you have to reach enormous numbers, sort of get them into the funnel, have an initial contact, and then gradually you come down to a smaller group. And partly because of the sheer pressure on anybody running a small business, it is extraordinarily difficult. And I, I'm chairman of the UK India Business Council, so deeply involved in this. It is extraordinarily difficult to get SMEs just to have that initial contact and conversation and then to think about whether it's worth their while putting in the time to invest in new markets and start exporting, especially the new fast growth ex markets of the world, which is where we need far more of our companies uh, trading uh, if they're actually going to succeed and generate the kind of growth we need for the British economy.
Um, I just comment on two things. One, one is the question of movement of civil servants. Um, I think this is a very important issue. This is something the civil service can do something about. It is completely disastrous how quickly civil servants are moved. It's bad enough having all the politicians move every 80 months, but actually the civil servants move. Um, and um, this was something that the civil servants made actually worse while I was there because there was a ruling by the cabinet secretary. It was not a ruling, it was a statement that no civil servant should really stay in a job longer than four years because they would then get stale. Um, and that meant that if you were a minister, you had a constant uh, change of, of civil servants. Um, and the, the corporate memory was even worse. So by the end, I mean, admittedly, I was there eight years, but by the end of it, I used to brief my civil servant uh, because um, I was the only person who knew the history of most of, of these um, decisions. And that is simply something easily the civil service can actually change and say, no, we're going to have proper succession planning and we will actually try and have people uh, go into jobs who've had some experience of that area be before. Uh, the, the animal rights uh, extremist one is, is just very difficult because it illustrates all the problems of these areas. Mm. Of course, the main problem was public opinion, and that was public opinion generally, but also within politicians, uh, started at a completely different uh, position as being rather in favor uh, of the animal rights people. Um, and, it, and it took six or seven years, and that included judges, it included the police, and it all had to be turned around, and also some legislation passed uh, to, to pin this down. Um, and I think uh, politicians uh, have to take public opinion, and they have to uh, spend a lot of time trying to change it if it's wrong. Uh, and you can't ignore public opinion, that's just part of being in a democracy. I restrict myself just to a direct answer to Dermot's point. Um, I would put the emphasis on commercial acumen. And that's a difficult one because not that many civil servants have worked in business. But I think the absolute key, rather more than the revolving door or the other issues, is whether people's mindset, their starting point when thinking about public policy that will impact on business, is what's a PLC look like, what's a uh, profit and loss account look like, and what's the impact of this likely action on a real-life business? Thank you very much. Um, so we're trying to take in the last round of questions. I think, uh, yes, gentlemen here. It, it, Richard Ritchie of um, BP. Um, two short observations and one question. Firstly, nobody's mentioned the importance of the European Union and whether that actually raises different issues for, for government and business Second thing, one really cannot exaggerate the importance of whether one's discussing big business or small business, I think. Um, one question to John. I think when you think about the CBI and the lobbying that you do in Westminster and in the EU, how much of that lobbying is caused as a result of having to try to mitigate what government is trying to do? In other words, how much is damage limitation and how much is actually trying to get something improved? I think that a great deal of what we do is actually caused by damage limitation and that therefore that is a diversion of effort. But again, on the, on the side of government as opposed to business, um, the 
the fact that businessmen don't have to work under the scrutiny of politicians. We don't have to defend our actions to, in public to anything like the extent that politicians do. We don't have to cope with a 24-hour media cycle to anything like the extent that we do. There's a sycophantic culture in business. People are, not, people are polite to chief executives. They're rude to politicians. But that means that chief executives get terribly out of touch. They're much less in touch with what's going on than politicians. And this is one of the reasons I think why business so often fails to understand the pressures that government are under. Yeah, hi, Sam Tevy from uh, Maitland. Um, I had a question really about the communication between uh, business and government, and I wonder whether it would be a good idea to have more statutory sort of requirement to be a member of, let's say, a business group. That happens in France, I think, in Germany. I wonder whether that's something over here that might be beneficial. Length, of course, but potentially quite useful. Uh, David Seymour, formerly polit political editor of the Mirror Group, now uh, political media consultant. Um, I'd like to say something a bit more about Europe um, because it's, it I mean, one of the things that's come through from the platform is how, not just on the, on the, in the narrow way that business and government relate over, you know, red tape or whatever the uh, it, it's called, but on the wider issues such as planning and, and, and um, uh, investment and, and development. Um, and what's happened um, with Europe, the public attitudes, is quite extraordinary. And Simon, I was interested, Simon says, if you said to people, should we close the M1, nobody would say we should because of the impact it would have on business. And yet roughly half the people in this country now think we should get out of the European Union, which would have a catastrophic effect on much of business, not all business, but much of business. And yet, although we've got a very good, in my opinion, very good uh, Minister for Europe at the moment, there's this terrific pressure in the, in the media and in politicians generally uh, um, to do something which would be terribly damaging to business in this country. And I'd like to know what the panel thinks about how this, that could be com combated. Thank you very much. We're counting down to the 10 o'clock pip, so I'll ask people if there's any very last thought they will throw in as well, but uh, if you could be as brief as possible. I will make only one point, and there's so much I could come back on. The vast majority of the CBI's work, without being flippant, is about the law of unintended consequence, which is a polite version of the cock-up theory of history. David? Yeah, I, I think the only point I make on Europe, because <coughs> often it does seem quite remote from business, is, of course, some of the things are actually negotiating about um, uh, opening up markets. So, for example, I've spent a lot of time on the services directive. That was about opening up and having new markets and creating markets. So it isn't, it isn't all totally negative. Bishop. Come back to the point about relationships. Absolutely crucial. And you have to have ministers as well as business leaders and entrepreneurs want and will invest time in making those relationships. And if you do that, we've got a much, much better chance of getting not only British policy, but also European regulation more right than wrong before it's actually... Simon, Actually, I'm going, to, I'm going to duck you because I'm really... I, well, no, very quickly. I mean, first of all... No, first of all, I'd say generally, uh, you know, anything that comes out of the EU does put my blood pressure up significantly. However, you know, talking of unintended consequences, one of the great things about the EU, which I never realised would, would be quite as powerful as it was, is the fact that it has opened Britain's borders to hundreds of thousands of people in Eastern Europe who are prepared to work hard, contribute to our economy. And that has provided, in my view, an enormous boost to the UK economy. So, you know, it's amazing how even for the uh, you know, people who are naturally opposed to these things, some, uh, in some 
unforeseen way, it has been a profoundly good thing um, for the British economy. Thank you, John. Okay, just to pick up on the, the point that uh, the gentleman from BP was making. Uh, yes, businesses aren't democracies, and they shouldn't be, uh, but that does mean that it's very true. The person who's got to the top of a business will often have a very poor understanding of the demands uh, on a democratic politician, uh, and you, you get the frustration, well, why can't government move as efficiently uh, as, a, as a company can? Well, because government has a completely different, much more diaphanous, much more complicated set of stakeholders. And you know, thinking of poor Tony Hayward and the awful mauling he got in the, in the US, which is in many ways very unfair, it was because rather than being treated like a CEO for a matter of a couple of months, he was treated like a politician. Uh, and nothing in his business life had prepared him, evidently, for the treatments that, uh, that he got that way. So that, 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 in some ways, gets to the heart of the problem. Governments are ultimately democratic, and businesses, quite rightly, I write for Lex, I certainly don't want to, any business out there to hold, make its decisions by holding a vote of all its clients, customers, stakeholders, employees, or anything like that. Um, uh, Businesses rightly are not, and there will always be a problem bridging that divide. But if you look around the world, um, non-democratic countries can do a quite good planned job of catching up. Very difficult indeed for them ever to overtake democracies. So I suppose we have to live with it. Wonderful. Perfect way to uh, sum up. Uh, on, on your behalf, um, I'll, I'll ask you to uh, join me in thanking the panelists for fantastic contributions. I think you've all agreed more stimulating and fun than a VAT open day. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, <laughs>